Hello and welcome to ILTV Zion News and the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up in today's newscast, the religious parties take another seat from the Likud as the final election tally comes in. Egypt's parliament resoundingly approves a measure that could allow President Sisi to remain in power until 2030. And an unusual Israeli musician blows away the competition at Britain's Got Talent. actual final election tally is finally complete, and it seems that the only changes lie within the right-wing bloc, as the Likud drops by one mandate to 35 Knesset seats, while the Haredi United Torah Judaism Party gains one for a total of eight. And this, just as the United Right and Israel Beitenu parties pledge their seats to Netanyahu at Rivlin's meetings. Thus, Netanyahu has at least the 61 seats necessary to form the next coalition. With the ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties gaining one more seat in Parliament, though, many worry even more now that the Haredi bloc will wield its power to the detriment of the government. For example, one of the issues that brought on the early elections in the first place was the debate over the Haredi military draft. The High Court ruled that the Haredi exemption was unconstitutional, and Lieberman's Israel Beitenu party has demanded that a just military conscription be enacted. He also demanded that his party be given the defense and foreign ministry portfolios. But the United Torah Judaism Party has already released a statement that the party has made a decision to insist that anyone who studies Torah and Torah is his art can continue to study without interference, even if it means going back to elections. Well, if a compromise cannot be reached, then that may very well happen, as both UTJ and Israel Beitenu hold the numbers to collapse the government again, especially as Blue and White and the other traditional opposition parties have already vowed never to join the Likud coalition. In related news, Naftali Bennett has now publicly admitted fault for his new right party's loss in the recent elections, but many still question why he thought it was wise to split the right-wing vote in the first place. Well, joining us now with more is Naftali Ben-Simon, a journalist and a member of the Likud party. Naftali, thank you so much for coming back in today. Good evening. My pleasure. All right, so, you know, what, what do you think Naftali Bennett was hoping for? I mean, well, obviously he was hoping for a lot more Knesset seats and a lot more of the right wing to float to his base, but why do you think he held that assumption so strongly? This is always a mistake of people who think that their, their personality is bigger than the brand. Mm. And the brand is the right wing uh, that comes from uh, the religious parties. And that w uh, that's where Naftali Bennett get his voice. His voices last time when he got eight or nine mandates. He thought that I'm big enough to be alone and to bring the same amount of mandates. But you know what? Nobody well, knew exactly what is the new brand of Naftali Bennett well, besides the name Bennett. But between him and Shaked, and their history as, you know, ministers, yes. as Knesset members, uh, leaders of, of their respective parties. Why, you know, why, why were they so wrong? You know, because I, I'm not saying, oh, you know, may, maybe he's not as big as the brand. I'm saying, how did he not even get into the Knesset? He didn't even pass the threshold. Uh, when you go down, sometimes it's very painful when you are, when you are taking the wrong track. And you can arrive to many places, but not on, on, on the lane that you wanted to be. Mm. And this is the biggest failure of Bennett and Shaked, because they were great ministers, very popular, not only in Israel, also in the world. And they, they thought that everyone 
everyone thought that they have a bright future, a political future, but when you are going wrong, it's all, all, all the way down. So, so first of all, you know, before maybe we come back to this, I want to know how many times has this happened before? Because this seems to be kind of a common trend within the right-wing parties where, uh, where in previous elections, uh, some party leader will just say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing and it doesn't quite work out. Uh, take the biggest of the prime ministers of Israel in the history of Israel, besides Netanyahu, Ben-Gurion. Mm. He, he created the Rafi party and he thought that, well, I don't need uh, my, my base. I will create something new and it collapsed. Ariel Sharon with Kadima, it was a big promise. Well, what happened to him? But it's also collapsed. Israeli politics is built on brands, mm. right wing, Likud, labor, and, and the others are, are it's, it's maybe uh, fashionable, but it the, not last, uh, exist uh, last. All right, so going back then again to Naftali Bennett and Shaked, because you know, you're talking about branding here. Naftali Bennett and, and Ayala Shaked, they have a strong brand, even now. And, and during the campaign, you know, you, we saw Naftali Bennett everywhere. We saw him at funerals, we saw him on the border, we saw him at, at commemoration events, we saw on the radio. And then, you know, with, with Shaked, with her, with her the music video that they put out and their fascism <laughs> scent, you know, brand, yeah. we're talking about a big presence. So why did it backfire? Because the presence was wrong, completely wrong. And when the presence is wrong, you start to ask yourself, what's going on here? I, I'm, I'm not sure this is the party that I belong to. Mm. And what they are, what is their personality? identity, they didn't have any political identity, not right, uh, not left, uh, not center, not religious, not secular, not what. So what are you? Who are you? Mm. So this is a mistake that people think they are more popular than the brand or the base. And now uh, they, they understand very well and very painful what is the result of a very wrong campaign? So how did, how did this affect the coalition t negotiations and, and the strength of the right wing uh, or maybe the policies of the right wing bloc going into the, the new 21st Knesset? How did, how did that maybe change, the? I think especially on the policy issue, I'd, I'd like to stick on that. Look, uh, th this coalition of the right coalition of Netanyahu, it's a... <laughs> It's a, it will be a very complicated issue mm. uh, to promote some uh, uh, political issues. It will not be easy. You have, you have uh, very different uh, uh, wings, like Lieberman from one, one side and the ultra-Orthodox yeah. from the other side. They will not move for an inch, and also him. And Netanyahu, uh, as, a, as a, a, the biggest magician, the political magician mm. of, of the Israeli politics, will have to prove another one, and, 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 and another game again, that uh, we, he can create a, a government that has some, you know, common uh, thoughts about how to lead this country, how, how, how to deal with uh, uh, di uh, difficult issues. And I'm sure that it, uh, everybody will understand that even without the right wing like Bennett and others, Everybody understand that 
don't make a, a problems to Netanyahu because it's it can be too dangerous, too mm. fragile, and uh, it's a very political risk for the right wing. So they will keep Netanyahu, they mm. will keep the government, okay. and they will say, you know what, another uh, time we'll we will choose again Bennett. Yeah, it's but be... for now, let's keep Netanyahu. Right, well, I, well, I think it's going to be very interesting in the next few weeks to see kind of how the different parties, because you mentioned, you know, Litzman, Litzman's United Torah Judaism, the Haredi parties, no, uh, and Abigdol Lieberman's party. It's going to be very interesting to see how they leverage their, their powers, but... I, uh, I can I'm assure sure. you that will be the biggest political circus in the Middle East. It's going to be interesting. Nastali Ben-Simon, thank you so much for coming. Thank in. you. Moving on, Egypt is also now undergoing an election of sorts, as roughly 55 million Egyptians prepare to vote next week on the set of referendums that would extend President Sisi's four-year term by two years to 2022. Additionally, it would also allow Sisi to run for another six-year term, potentially even lengthening his rule until 2030. And this, after the Egyptian parliament already approved the constitutional changes on Tuesday in a vote of 531 to 22. <laughs> والاستقرار والأمن والأمان ومستقبل أولادنا نوافق على التعديلات الدستورية. And this, after the Egyptian Parliament already approved the constitutional changes Tuesday in a vote of 531 to 22. Additionally, some changes would enact a 25% minimum representation of women in Parliament, while others would supposedly grant the president more power of the judiciary. And critics warned that these amendments would take Egypt back to a dictatorship fit for the Middle Ages. But it would hardly be surprising if these amendments were to successfully pass at the ballots next week, as Egypt has enjoyed relative stability under Sisi's leadership. Foreign leaders like Presidents Trump and Putin have expressed their support for Sisi, and further, he's remained a popular figure since the Arab Spring and the overthrowing of President Morsi in 2013, a military move that he himself led. Also, when elected in 2014 and 2018 respectively, he commanded an unmatched 97% of the vote. Still, that said, detractors and human rights activists all warn of a consolidated authoritarian rule and severe suppression of dissent. In fact, Reuters reported that according to an internet watchdog, a petition to block the referendums, which gained tens of thousands of signatures, has been repeatedly taken down. On the other hand, in the same spirit of the Arab Spring that eventually led to Sisi's election, many have still been galvanized to vote against him. With one unnamed man even telling The Guardian that he'll be voting for the first time in years just to vote no adding that he's not hopeful, but that he wouldn't be able to forgive himself if he didn't go. Meanwhile, back in the West Bank, the new Palestinian Authority is now warning that terror group and political rival Hamas is preparing for a coup in the West Bank, and it'll be similar in style to the coup in Gaza in 2007 that brought Hamas to power. According to Channel 12 News, senior Palestinian Authority officials and Fatah officials explained in a closed-door meeting that they fear Hamas will exploit the deteriorating economic situation in the PA uh, of PA officers and members of the security forces, and they will pay big money to buy them off. Following the Palestinian Authority's salary cuts from earlier this year in response to aid cuts from the United States, Hamas is looking to steal Palestinian officials' loyalties with under-the-table bribes, a move they first performed in 2007 ahead of their violent uprising in Gaza against Fatah. Additionally, adding fuel to the fire of speculation, Israeli authorities revealed on Tuesday night that the Hezbollah terror group in Lebanon, a sister organization to Hamas, constructed a massive antenna on the Lebanese border, which is transmitting Hamas propaganda across much of Israel and the West Bank. 
Israeli reports then go on to add that the signal has been picked up very clearly in northern Israeli prisons and that it has included several messages to Hamas prisoners over the past few weeks. Then finally, just to complicate things further, the satellite has been erected in a Lebanese army base, meaning that an Israeli attack targeting the transmitter could potentially inflame tensions between an already tense Israel and Lebanon. All right, a closed-door Trump administration meeting with the Jewish community and pro-Israel advocates drew controversy on Tuesday. The meeting, which hosted some 70 people, was held as the administration is expected to roll out its peace plan soon. Though despite the anxieties, it's a plan that United States Ambassador Ron Dermer believes will be favorable to Israel, with Dermer adding that he knows he has a friend in President Donald Trump. The ambassador also then said that he's confident that this administration, given its support for Israel, will take Israel's vital concerns into account in any plan that they put forward. But not everyone was happy about the meeting, as apparently many Jewish community heads weren't even invited. Leaders of the Jewish Reform, Conservative, and Reconstructionist movements, for example, were all shut out. And the White House would not comment on why the more progressive and centrist streams of Judaism were not invited. But it's not surprising, as their worldview is often seen as dramatically opposed to Trump's. Jewish advocacy organizations were also left out, though. While AIPAC and the Conference of Presidents were on the list, J Street and the Anti-Defamation League were not. And Haley Sofer, the director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, said that it's clear the Trump White House invited a subset of the Jewish community and intentionally excluded others. Meanwhile, though we still don't know what Trump's peace plan entails, the international community is already bracing for the worst. And EU foreign policy chief Federica Mogherini, for example, preemptively said that Netanyahu's talk of annexing parts of the West Bank is unacceptable. Further, speaking to the EU parliament, Mogherini said that a two-state solution is the only answer to this intractable conflict, adding that if it's not going to be a two-state solution, then it's not going to be a solution. Now, speaking of the two-state solution, we know one territory that will not be on the table in future peace talks, and that is the Golan Heights. This as the United States recognized Israel's control over the hotly contested region last month. And on Tuesday, the United States also released the first map reflecting that historic policy decision. In a tweet, United States Middle East envoy Jason Greenblatt posted a picture of the new map saying, Welcome to the newest edition of our international map system. The new map shows the 1974 borders between Israel and Syria as a permanent one. However, the armistice line with Lebanon is still in place, and the map also still reflects that the West Bank is occupied. As for Jerusalem, though, while the administration recognized it as Israel's capital, the borders of the holy city are also still disputed, according to the map. And finally, Israel captured the Golan Heights during the Six-Day War in 1967, and Israel later annexed the territory for defensive reasons in 1981. Though the international community never recognized this move, and to this day condemns Israel's control over the region. In fact, Trump's dramatic shift in policy drew condemnation from all around the world, especially among the EU and Arab countries. And so far, the U.S. is the only country that doesn't view the territory as belonging to Syria anymore. In other news, it seems that Instagram accounts are among the first casualties of the IRGC's new label as a terror group, as the photo-sharing social media platform has now blocked several profiles belonging to IRGC commanders. And even Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani's account, which was working as of last week, is down. Additionally, while only the IRGC was recently recategorized by the U.S., the English-language account for Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei has also been suspended in compliance with the new American sanctions. As one Instagram spokesperson added, Instagram is working with appropriate government authorities to ensure that it meets their legal obligations, including those relating to the recent designation of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Well, in response, and as promised, Iran's parliament has now in turn labeled American troops in the Middle East as terrorists too. Though that being said, it could have been much worse, 
As originally, Iranian lawmakers proposed labeling all the U.S. armed forces as terrorists, as opposed to only those stationed in the region. But whatever the case, both sides are now simply waiting to see how the designation will affect the other. From the United States' perspective, little is expected to change, as Iran has already been labeled as a state sponsor of terror, though accounting for nearly 20% of the Iranian economy, a threat to the IRGC is truly another threat to the regime as a whole. And finally, in similar fashion, the labeling of American forces as terrorists by Iran likely does little as well, as Iran has already attacked, kidnapped, and killed American troops in the past leading up to today. Therefore, while the situation is extremely tense, thankfully there's no real war yet on the horizon. Moving on, early Wednesday morning, IDF forces destroyed the home of the Ofra terrorist who injured seven people at a bus stop shooting, which included a pregnant woman whose baby later died. And the terrorist, Salih Barghouti's home near Ramallah, was raised by IDF troops as per policy as punishment for the attack carried out last December. Then, to make matters worse, a day after Barghouti's heinous attack, his brother Asem went on a shooting rampage near another bus stop, killing two soldiers and seriously injuring another. Though his home was demolished last month, and Asem is currently facing trial for those murders. As for Salih, however, after an extended manhunt, he was later killed when he was finally discovered by Israeli security forces. And Palestinian eyewitnesses in the village of Kobal said that IDF troops came in with a bulldozer at 3 a.m. Wednesday morning to demolish the Barghouti home. Though thankfully, no clashes with local Palestinians were reported. And despite the controversy home demolitions elicit, Israel stands by its belief that home demolitions are an effective means to deter terrorism. Chaim Silberstein, the father of Shira Ishran, the pregnant woman who was forced to undergo an emergency C-section, ultimately losing her baby, agrees. In fact, he said that home demolitions are not nearly enough punishment for terrorist acts, adding that they should be only one of a list of actions needed to both punish and deter terrorists and those who want to be terrorists. Further, he also lamented that this act comes four months too late and that he hopes God avenges the blood of his grandson, Amiad Israel, and indeed all the victims of terror. The Jerusalem District Court has now upheld the deportation order of a local director for Human Rights Watch this week, and according to the order, Omar Shakir must leave the country within two weeks. Further, his deportation comes amidst his work advocating for the boycott of Israel. But Shakir is just the latest example of the new law spearheaded by Strategic Affairs Minister Gilad Erdan to boycott the boycotters in action. Though this is the first time that the new law was applied to someone already residing in the country. Still, the court justified its decision, though, saying that Shakir, a U.S. citizen, continues his actions publicly to advance a boycott against Israel, and the court then cited his social media activity as evidence of such. For their part, though, Human Rights Watch and Shakir deny that he's a boycott activist. And rather, Human Rights Watch says that it works against developments that inherently benefit from and contribute to serious violations of international humanitarian law. And this deportation then, the organization said, sets a precedent for all other international agency officials in the region. Though Shakil wasn't the only nonprofit official targeted by the government recently. For example, the Abraham Initiative, which advocates for equality for Arabs in Israel, claimed that one of its members, Laura Mendel, was just held by security officials at the airport for an unusual amount of time. Mendel, who was leaving Israel en route for the U.S., was questioned for over an hour regarding her involvement with the nonprofit. And the Abraham Initiative said that such questioning marked the first time a coexistence advocate was questioned by Israeli officials. Further, her laptop, medications, and personal belongings were confiscated during the flight, and she was allegedly questioned as to why a Jewish American would even be interested in advancing Arab rights within the Jewish society to begin with. In the end, though, Mendel was released, and the airport authority claimed that it was simply following protocol. On another note, a video has now surfaced on Palestinian social media threatening those planning on attending next month's Eurovision Song Contest.
And this just after a disturbing video threatening an Israeli delegation forced them to cancel their plans to attend a conference in Bahrain. Additionally, in similar fashion, this new video boasts both Arabic and Hebrew captions, warning that there will be no celebrations or dancing while two million Gazans suffer. Now, the clip then goes on to warn that unless the humanitarian conditions in Gaza improve, there will be no cause for celebration. Therefore, the video demands the removal of the blockade, and it also alludes to sticking to the ceasefire agreement between Israel and Hamas. Additionally, with images showing the Eurovision venue in the crosshairs, it's clear that whoever made the video wants to incite panic ahead of the mega-singing contest scheduled for May 12th. Though the video also comes amid weeks of relative quiet along the Gaza border, as Egypt, the United Nations, and Qatar attempt to broker a truce with Israel. And whatever agreement is finalized will surely entail easing some restrictions imposed on the Strip. Meanwhile, arguably the most famous BDS proponent, Roger Waters, is now targeting the competition from another angle. The band frontman is urging Madonna to not perform at the event, and in an op-ed published in The Guardian, the musician implored her not to play in Tel Aviv if she cares about human rights. He also justified his words by saying that a performance in Israel, quote, normalizes the occupation. Well, in any case, as for the Eurovision itself, some 12,000 tourists are still scheduled to descend on Tel Aviv that fateful week, and the Tel Aviv municipality also has several celebratory events planned around the contest, with Tel Aviv Mayor Ron Khuldai vowing that this will be the best Eurovision ever. And finally, the latest Israeli export to blow audiences away in more ways than one is Guy First, whose recent appearance on Britain's Got Talent earned a standing ovation. So what did he do to earn such praise, you ask? Well, he didn't sing or dance or do any magic tricks. No, instead he hand farted. Yes, you heard that right. By using his hands to simulate fart sounds, first regaled the audience with his version of classics like Take On Me and The Eye of the Tiger. And the not easily impressed panel of judges giggled while he tooted along, just before then telling an astounded first that he's made it into the second round of the talent competition. Well, of course, the musically flatulent first shared his excitement on Facebook, exclaiming that he got four yeses for his hand fartsies, and that he's bloated away from the unexpectedly warm reaction. Though first's talents aren't exactly all that new. The Ramadgan native is somewhat of an expert in fart noises, actually, and his affinity for musically rhythmic toots have earned him an avid following on social media with a popular dedicated YouTube channel and a weekly live stream fart along where he even honors song requests made by viewers. And finally, considering the nature of his fart art, it's no surprise that Weird Al Yankovic, another member of the tribe, is an inspiration for First. So while First may not be a Nata Barzilai or a Gal Gadot, Israel is still rooting for his musical yet thankfully non-toxic emissions. And now for Today in History, on April 17, 1997, the sixth President of Israel, Major General Chaim Herzog, passed away. Born in Belfast, Ireland to the Irish chief rabbi at the time, Herzog and his family moved to British Mandatory Palestine in 1935, and once there he joined up with the British Army in World War II, fighting against the German Nazi army and taking part in the liberation of multiple Nazi death camps. He even captured Nazi soldier Heinrich Himmler before eventually retiring from the British Army in 1947 at the rank of Major. But from there, Herzog's fighting days were far from over as he returned to fight in the Israeli War of Independence. And it seems Herzog was well suited for battle as he stayed in the military for another 14 years before retiring at the, at the rank of Major General. Then in 1962, trading in his fatigues for a suit, Herzog continued to defend Israel on the world stage as the Israeli ambassador to the UN before later be becoming a Knesset member and then president in 1983. And finally, in 1993, after two terms as president, 
Herzog retired from political life before passing away four years later at the age of 78. He was laid to rest at the Mount Herzl Cemetery in Jerusalem. Now let's go ahead and take a look at the weather forecast. Tonight will be partly cloudy with a low of about 57 or 14 degrees Celsius. Then tomorrow will be clear to partly cloudy again and with a high of 67 or 19 degrees Celsius.